You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This morning we come to God's Word to the prophecy of Isaiah. So I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. It is on page 571 of the Pew Bibles, if you're following along there. And if you've been here for some time, you know that when I have opportunity to preach in the morning, I am typically going through the Psalms, but I'm taking a little detour for the time being, looking at what I'm calling words of comfort. Last time we looked at Isaiah 42, that great verse, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Isaiah is called the fifth gospel because it's so full of these great gospel truths. And I'm frankly having a hard time leaving Isaiah to go to other places. So I think this will be the last time we're in Isaiah before I go hit another couple different passages in God's word. But we come today to one of the most profound realities of the gospel, how God treats our sin in Christ. And as we see, though, this passage requires us to begin with the nature of God. Who is God? And then we can consider what he does with our sin. So we'll be reading this morning Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So hear now the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Have you ever been in awe of someone before? I remember when I was a kid, elementary school maybe, getting to see my NASCAR hero, Dale Jarrett. He'd come to a local place to, uh, he was a local guy, but he came to a local place to sign autographs one afternoon. And I got to take my little die-cast car, my t-shirt, to Dale Jarrett for the signature. And as I waited in line, I I, I saw him off in the distance and got closer and closer to my hero. And as I got closer and closer, I clammed up 
I couldn't speak. And as I came up to him, I, I couldn't say anything. I was tongue-tied and awestruck. And this is my hero, the one I see on TV. He's here in front of me. Something of awe that I said, or that I saw that day. But who would it be for you? Are you a Taylor Swift fan? What would it be to stand in her presence? Some other celebrity, athlete, politician, maybe a boss you admire and revere, a grandparent who is so godly and wise. There's somebody who transcends those normal categories of human greatness. Who do you stand in awe of? In a world where political office has frankly lost most of its dignity, where British royalty seems to have made an intentional effort to become more like us commoners, there's not much awe remaining in our world. And so we need scenes like Isaiah 6 to help us enter into what awe truly is. This scene is one of the most powerful in all of Scripture. There's a weight and a gravity to us to it that is, that is hard to escape. And I think if we enter into this reverence and awe of the great and mighty God, we will be forced to grapple with who God is and who we are in light of that. This passage, I think, is so powerful. A friend of mine was even converted simply reading this passage. And you may be familiar with R.C. Sproul, who's brought this passage to life in many ways. You may have read his book, The Holiness of God, that's really centered around this passage and begins with an exposition of it. Maybe you've heard one of his many sermons that he's preached on it. This is an important passage for us to understand who God is, but who we are, and how this holy God forgives us. We have a little bit of a setting here we can, we can place before we enter into it. This is the year King Uzziah died, somewhere in the 400s BC. This is less important for a historical marker, but what, because what it's saying here is there is now a leadership crisis in, in Judah. The king has died, and the question is, who is the real king? Who will be seated on the throne? There's a vacuum that had to be filled. So Isaiah receives this vision of the real king, the one who's truly seated on the throne, no matter who is on the throne in Judah or in Israel. And the particular location of this is in the temple. The train of his robe fills the temple. And the question that scholars like to debate, is this the, the temple in Jerusalem or is this a heavenly temple? And I think it really doesn't ultimately matter because as Hebrews 8.3 says, the Old Testament temple is merely a copy and a shadow of the heavenly realities. So we're placed here in the heavenly realities of God's heavenly throne through the vision that God allows Isaiah to see. And we come to see that in Jesus Christ, the holiness and justice and mercy of God show forth in the forgiveness of sinners who call upon him. And those will be our three points this morning, the holiness, the justice, and the mercy of God. So let's first look at verses one through four and consider the holiness of God. And this, these four verses is that dramatic scene, this display of the vision that Isaiah has. It's using human terms 
to somehow describe these unseen realities of God's holiness that Isaiah is somehow getting a glimpse into. And he sees here the Lord, Adonai, the master, the ruler, or even this word can be translated the king. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king seated on the throne. Very clear, it becomes very clear that this king is God himself. God is seated on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. These robes that adorn God fill the throne room of God. It's indicating how great and how overwhelming the very presence of God is. We have these creatures, the seraphim. It's the only place in scripture we have them named like this. The seraphim, we don't know if there are two or if there's 200 or 2,000 of them, but he describes them here, how they're covering their eyes with two of their wings because they can't even look upon the holiness and the majesty of God. With two more of their wings, they're cover, covering their feet out of humility and submission to God. And with two, they're flying. And as they're flying and encircling God's throne, they're calling to one another in, in call and response format. This phrase, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy meaning set apart. Set apart with absolute purity. There's a purity here in this God that is unknown in any of his creation. But even more than that, God is set apart in a being all of his own. He is of a different category, a different class. He is unlike any of his creatures because he indeed is a creator. There is none like him. He is set apart as the philosophers would say, ontologically. His being is radically different. He's not just a greater human. He is utterly different from humanity, utterly different from creation. He is holy, holy, holy. And we could spend all morning, all day, thinking about this. But we won't this morning. But the repetition here reinforces that God's holiness is unlike anything else in all of creation. And this glorious, powerful singing of these angelic beings leads to the foundations of the thresholds shaking. We see in verse four. It's almost as if the earth underneath the temple wants to resound in singing as well. And so it shakes to the glory of God, shaking in awe and reverence because of his holiness and his majesty. And then we have the temple that is filled with smoke. He can't even look upon God. As we sang, holy, 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 it says, though the darkness hide thee. That's the darkness of the cloud of God's presence. We can't actually look upon him. No one can see God and live. So Isaiah can't even see God here because of the cloud covering him, the cloud that has now draped itself upon his presence. And that's what the cloud is, the smoke in scripture. It's denoting God's glorious presence. We see it in Mount Sinai when, when the smoke descends upon the mountain and so the people can't look upon God. Or when the tabernacle was completed at the end of Exodus, the, the, the cloud of God's glorious majesty comes into the tabernacle and people can't enter it. Moses can't even enter because of God's glory. 
Same when the temple was built, the cloud of God's glory indwells the temple to show God is here, God is present. And this is the same vision that Ezekiel had with the new temple once it would be rebuilt of God's presence dwelling in there. His weighty and majestic and holy presence. That's the cloud that we have here, the smoke in the temple of God's presence. Are you getting something of the picture? Are you beginning to see something of the power and the majesty and the greatness of God? People like to go and to dive into what does the, the word holy mean? And we can dive into that and all the details and the specifics. But I think what's really here, holy is being shown to us by the whole image being painted. This is a holy God, a majestic God, a morally perfect God, a powerful God. Do you see him? This God the God who can only dwell with perfection. And this is not just some Old Testament God we see here. This is not just the Old Testament God who's, who's large and mean and ferocious. And now we have a domesticated God now that Jesus has come. That's not what's going on here because we read earlier from Revelation 4. This is now heaven now. This is the heaven that we have to look forward to where it is virtually the same scene these creatures with six wings encircling the throne forever and ever who are calling out to God and praising him. And the elders are there bowing down before the throne and we will join them bowing down before the throne. The same powerful, glorious, holy, holy, holy God. Now this idea of holiness, it doesn't sum up God completely as if it's the only attribute of God. But... For creatures, God's holiness is the first reality about God that creatures must encounter. We must encounter God first in his holiness. We must come to God acknowledging his greatness and his holiness. You may have heard uh, Tozer's, A.W. Tozer's famous line when he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Hyperbolic, overstating his case, yes. But he's getting at something important. Who do you think of God as? What do you think of when you think of God? Is it this majestic, glorious picture of God? Because I think in our day, his holiness has generally been lost among evangelicals. And that's where R.C. Sproul committed his ministry to demonstrating the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God, big God theology as some would say. I had a, uh, a good friend in high school. We got to be on praise team together at school. We were in a band together. You can ask some of the high schoolers about that another time. I will not divulge any details here. But I had a great friend who was our drummer, and he had this shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And it had this, this cartoon character of Jesus doing this. And even then I was thinking... There's something not right about that, that t-shirt. Because the reality is, Jesus is not my homeboy. Yes, he's a friend of sinners, but Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, is the holy and matchless and powerful God that we encounter in Isaiah 6. God is not my co-pilot. God is the king of heaven and earth. God does not exist for me-centered therapeutic reasons. We start by knowing who, God, who this God is 
and recognizing that all of reality is designed by him for his glory. And so I exist not for God to make me happy, but I exist to bring glory to this holy God. I exist to fall down at his throne and worship him. He demands it because of his character, because this is who he is. It is right that everyone worship and bow down before this holy God. So what comes into your mind when you think of God? This holy, great God or domesticated God? You see his holiness first. Let us consider his justice second. This is verse five. And the real question here that that is for Isaiah and for us, okay, in light of this incredible scene, the scene we could spend all day considering and pondering and never plumbing the depths of, in light of this scene, what is your response? What do we do to his moral purity and perfection that even the, the, the perfect angelic beings can't look upon? What is your response? Isaiah responds in verse five, Woe is me. Woe is an important word used by prophets. Isaiah's already used it eight times in his book before we come to chapter six. It's a prophetic calling down of condemnation on those who reject God and who sin against him. The woes have been used over and over and over to say, woe is this kind of person because they reject God and they sin against him. Woe is this person because they reject the creator of heaven and earth. Woe are all these people. And Isaiah says, I can't just prophesy woe for others. Woe is me. In this holy God's presence, I am condemned. In this presence of this holy God, I have no hope. I'm ready to be struck dead at this moment. He's calling self-condemnation on himself because he knows he's a sinner. He knows he is condemned as he's nakedly standing in God's presence. He particularly names his unclean lips. This always struck me. Why? Why does he say lips? Why not? I'm a man of unclean actions or I'm a man of unclean thoughts. I'm a man of an impure heart. Why does he say lips? I don't know why, but I think two, two maybe um, proposals and might be why he says lips. And the first is, what are the other words that are being said in this passage? It's the holy, holy, holy from the seraphim. And he's saying, I can't even praise God rightly. I can't even take his, names, his name upon my lips without marring his holy character. I am so sinful, even if I say his name, I'm defiling him. I'm a sinner. So woe is me. My lips shouldn't even sing his praises because it would not do it adequately. So I think that's the first reason. But the, and the second reason pertains to his particular call as a prophet. When he was called to speak God's words, speak God's promises and God's condemnation to all who will hear. And so he's saying, as a prophet, I don't have lips sufficient for this. He's saying he cannot hide. He cannot blame anyone else. Come tonight, and we'll talk about how Adam and Eve like to blame other people for their sin. Isaiah could not blame anyone, and he has to take complete responsibility for all of his sin. And here in this moment, he knows God is just, and he can only exclaim what just judgment will be upon himself. 
He's saying, this is right, that I am lost. I am undone, as some translations say. God's destruction would be just and right for me. We all stand in Isaiah's shoes. This is an example for us. This is true of us. Because we are the poor sinner, sinner that Isaiah is. We cannot hide our sin because it is now exposed before God. And your sin rightly necessitates a just sentence of condemned for you. Every natural consequence of your sin is the least that you deserve. They deserve condemnation for you, eternal torment. For this holy God in his temple cannot countenance evil and sin. It is just and right. It's important that we start every single worship service here. Every single service, we start with God speaking to us, calling us into his presence, his holy presence. We're being called into the same throne room scene week by week. We don't see it visually, but spiritually, we know this is exactly what is happening. We're being called into the presence of a holy God. And we praise his name, but then we quickly realize, woe is me. How can I come into God's presence? We confess our sin just like Isaiah does every single week. We don't physically see the the train filling the temple. We don't see the seraphim. We don't see the smoke. But it is no less a reality, even now as we sit here at this moment, that that is true about God and our presence with him. So confess our sins. Confess your sins, like Isaiah. Your sins are a big deal. Overwhelmed by his holiness, we can only say, woe is me. I will die if I behold the King, the Lord of hosts. Every one of our sins should cut us to the heart. Every one should make us realize I deserve eternal punishment. There's no sin that is small potatoes. There's no sin that is justifiable. All of it deserves condemnation. Do you ever not feel conviction of your sin? Sometimes do you sin and you say, you know, I feel bad because I don't really feel bad. I don't feel the conviction of sin. I think when we are in those places, it's, it's a scary place to be. We have to come back and sit in Isaiah 6 and understand the holiness of God. We have too small a view of God. Remember his holiness. Remember that he is enthroned above all and he is the Lord of hosts. Come back to him and say, Lord, help me see my sin for what it is. Let me see you for who you are. Now, I've said this series is called Words of Comfort. Have we gotten there? We haven't gotten there yet, but we're on the verge. We're about to get there. We've seen God's holiness. We've seen God's justice. Let's come to God's mercy. Verses six and seven. There's something surprising that happens. Because really, the natural consequence following verse 5 should be Isaiah being stricken dead at that moment. He's done. I am undone. I'm destroyed. He was ready for the judgment to be rendered. But what happens is one of the seraphim breaks ranks at God's command and flies to Isaiah. 
He leaves his service attending to God. And now he's attending to God with this other action by extending God's mercy to Isaiah. He brings this this coal. He grabs this coal with tongs from the altar and he takes it to the lips of Isaiah. That very place that he described as unclean, where his sin is manifest, where he can't even praise God, he can't even prophesy for God because he is so unclean and sinful. And this coal is interesting. It's really important to think about this. What is the purpose of this coal? Why, why does God show us a coal? Well, this coal coming from the altar in the temple, it's representing the entire temple system. The sacrifices, the lamps, the bread of the presence, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, the priests, the decorations, all of these things. This coal is, is one small piece to represent the whole. And this entirety of the sacrificial system, the temple system, is now flying, as it were, and touching Isaiah. Each element is a, is a picture to Israel how God restores fellowship with his people through this substitutionary sacrifice. And so this coal is applying to Isaiah the fullness of God's Old Testament pictures of salvation and grace and mercy. So this little coal represents all of God's promises of salvation. It represents the sacrifice that was laid upon the altar. And now that coal from that altar comes and touches Isaiah, says you're forgiven, but it requires that sacrifice. You're forgiven, not out of thin air, but you're forgiven based upon the sacrifice. And that's why the declaration can come so clearly in verse seven. He touches Isaiah's mouth and the seraphim says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is an incredible declaration. This is truly stunning what has taken place here. Do you you sense that? Do Do you see the weight of this? This is now, remember, the holy God's presence where he is truly justified in being condemned for eternity and dying right there on the spot. But what has now been said to him is radically different from what he deserves. God's mercy has clearly been described and displayed here with this decisive, final, irrevocable announcement. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Isaiah no longer needs to be worried that his unclean lips will cast him out of God's presence because they're no longer unclean. The guilt is gone. There's now atonement between God and man. Of course, this coal is a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the substance of all the temple pointed, all all the temple represented. It all pointed towards him. It all had its culmination in him. There was sacrifices day by day by day in the temple, but there was one sacrifice to end all the sacrifices. All of these elements, the the bread of the presence and, and the lamps and the priests and all this pointed to the ultimate end. That is Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. Now the great high priest, the one whose light shines in the darkness, who says, this bread is my body, eat remembrance of me, all of this shows Jesus Christ. 
we can receive the same forgiveness Isaiah received through him. I know Christians who struggle with this reality of forgiveness, who struggle personally feeling it and experiencing it. They, they have difficulty believing that, that they could possibly be forgiven because of what they've done. And they struggle mightily hearing this pronouncement that the guilt is gone, your sin is forgiven. The only way that these Old Testament saints, Isaiah and, and all the others, were, were forgiven is because they looked to God's promised substitute who is to come. God's promise that sins will be forgiven when you look to the substitute I provide and he was to come. All these temple sacrifices pointed to. But now we, you and I today, we have the Messiah. We have the one who has come. We have Jesus Christ himself. We don't just have shadows and figures and types that point to him. We have Jesus himself. And when we look to him with faith, that is the coal touching our lips. When we look to him and receive and rest in him alone, that is the coal touching our lips and God proclaims over you, your sins are forgiven. There's a transfer of guilt from us to him and he finally takes upon himself, he fully takes upon himself our sin to cleanse us of them. And so this, is here and now a call to faith because this is not a promise for everyone. This is a call to trust in Christ because these things are true for those who look to him. This was true of Isaiah because he looked to the God of the Old Testament sacrificial system to provide for atonement for his sins. And all those who look to Jesus Christ will be saved. if Isaiah could be confident of God's forgiveness, how much more can we be confident of this declaration? Because we have Christ. He has come. He has proclaimed his gospel. He has pro proclaimed his promises. He has proclaimed that your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for, because what he did on the cross at Calvary. Your sin is gone. Your sin, Christian, has been dealt with. Your sin, Christian, will never be seen again. It has been left in the tomb when Christ rose from the dead. God does not hold your sin against you. He will not bring it up on your worst day. He will not bring it back on the last day. He will not make you pay for it because it has been paid for in full by Christ. And this is important. God does not simply forgive our sin without cost. He can't just simply say, you know what? I'm going to forget that that ever happened. God, being just, must justly deal with our sin. That is only done by a sacrifice on our behalf. Our sin must be paid for. And that is Jesus Christ. What's the result here? As we conclude in the next couple of moments. What is the result? Where does this end? Isaiah gets to stay in God's presence. Isaiah is not cast off. And in fact, if we go down to verse eight and following, God goes on to speak directly to him and commissions him to be a prophet. 
And so what this means for us is that no sin is too great that will cause God to cast you off. You carry it no more. The weight is removed. The guilt is taken away. You can now stand in God's presence. That's why after the call to worship, we don't go home. We confess our sin and we have the assurance of pardon every week. That is exactly what the seraph says to Isaiah. Your sin is forgiven. And we can stand in God's presence to do that which we were created to do, to worship and praise and adore him. And now to go into this world and live our life in service to him. And this is where we can find comfort. I love the hymn that says, O blessed Jesus, may we find a covert in thy wounds. May we find our refuge and satisfaction and yes, comfort in your wounds. This is where we come and find comfort. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. This forgiveness of sins is not just some theory or a hypothesis. This is actuality the truth that you can rest in. And an important part of this is that we don't live the Christian life saying, woe is me, all the time. We don't walk around saying, woe is me, I'm such a terrible, awful person. And yes, we are full of sin. And yes, we confess our sin fully and completely as we're able to, to God. But we live now humbly before this God in light of the mercy of Christ to us. So as Hebrew says, we can now boldly approach the throne of grace. Yes, humbly, but also boldly, knowing because Christ has forgiven our sins, it is now our right to come before God. So we don't sulk. We don't sit in our sin and say, I'm just a terrible, awful person. No, our status has been changed. You're no longer fundamentally a sinner. You are fundamentally holy and a saint, as Paul would say. In 2022, Tim Keller uh, published his, I believe it was his final book um, before he died and went to be with the Lord. It's a book called Forgive. And it's a tremendous resource that I highly recommend. If Maybe you're one of those people I mentioned earlier who struggles with uh, feeling forgiven. Or maybe you're on the other side where, where you need points one and two. You take God's forgiveness for granted or don't even think God needs to forgive you because you miss his holiness. Right, this is a great resource for, for all of us as we consider God's forgiveness and then how to forgive others. But he tells a story in this book of a, a famous preacher in England, Dick Lucas, who was the rector of uh, an Anglican church, St. Helen's Bishopsgate. And there was, in 1955, there was an invitation at Cambridge University uh, to bring Billy Graham to, to speak to the university for, for a week. And there was a lot of outcry against Billy Graham. Um, he's some hick Southerner. Who, what is he doing coming to England to speak to the best scholars in the world at Cambridge University? And so Billy Graham, when he came, the first several nights, he, he tried to, uh, to preach in academic mode, as Keller said. He was quoting intellectuals and, and scholars and trying to relate to them on this level, but realizing it's not wasn't getting through to his audience. And then halfway through this third night on Wednesday night, uh, 1955, at Cambridge University, Keller says this, he got down on his knees, prayed, and determined to throw out his prepared notes and simply preach about the blood of Christ 
and the cross. This is where Dick Lucas comes in. He tells this story many years later in his sermon that, that Keller quotes. And, and I, I want to read here from Dick Lucas. And he's recounting that night. He says, I will never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor at Great St. Mary's Church with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one side and the chaplain of the college, who was a future bishop, on the other side of me. Both of these were good men, but completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. Dear Billy Graham got up that night and began at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice in it. The blood was flowing all over the great hall, everywhere for three quarters of an hour. Both my neighbors were horribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ and also must have been sure that no bright, sophisticated young British person was going to believe any of this stuff. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. There were only 8,000 students in the student body then. I remembered meeting uh, a young pastor. This is, again, Lucas saying this. I remembered meeting a young pastor some years later, a Cambridge graduate at Birmingham Cathedral. Over a cup of tea, I said, where did, Christ, where did Christian things begin for you? Oh, at Cambridge in 55, he said. When? Billy Graham. What night? It was Wednesday night. How did, it, how did that happen? Well, he said, all I remember is that I walked out of Great St. Mary's for the first time in my life thinking Christ really died for me. It is the blood of Christ that we need that is for you when you look to Jesus Christ. And you can know like this man, these 400 men and women who sat under that preaching that day, that Christ died for sinners and proclaiming, woe is me, God comes to you with the blood of Christ. So look to Jesus. And now in light of Christ, those who look to Jesus, our sin is now a monument of God's grace. Our sin is something that shows us even more greatly how marvelous and beautiful and glorious God is. And we can rejoice, not in our sin, that a holy God would be so just and merciful to take our sin himself, to deal with it himself, to nail it to a cross and forgive us for all of it. This is what the holy, just, and merciful God does for all who look to Jesus Christ. Do you know this holy God? Do you know this just God? Do you know the merciful God? Then in him, find let us look to him in prayer. Thank you, O oh God, that you are holy and just and yet merciful. And I pray that you would enable us to see the mercy of Jesus Christ as his blood was poured out for sinners, that we would call upon his name and be strengthened in faith. Oh, may we know that we are forgiven. May you help us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. For listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.